Hello and welcome to the Beat the Press podcast, the show which looks at how footballers and the people around them deal with pressure on and off the pitch. My name is John Osori and as ever, I'm joined by my co-host Luke Chiverton. Hi John, good to be here. Um, and we're recording this in the middle of the international break. So to be honest, I mean, it's just nice to have something to distract me from a series of pretty torturous fixtures that have probably been helping most of our listeners get some quality sleep. Yeah, yeah. I I caught the, the England-Belgium match, uh, so the latter of the two games, and couldn't help be struck by the fact that Martin Tyler, I think every 60 seconds, had to make reference to the, to the fact that this was a really important game. <laughs> Just to try and up the ante and then build the interest. Yeah, and I felt bad because, you know, it was that there were two fairly decent sides. I mean, obviously, you can kind of make an argument for the fact that England were playing a team of a team sensibly fielded of right backs, but there were two, you know, fairly decent teams. But it was one of those games where I felt the lack of a crowd just contributed to this, to this kind of sense of slight meaningless around the game. Yeah, and I guess the other thing, John, is you've got a group of players there who are probably already very, very worried about fatigue. And, and that's not exactly conducive to gripping attacking football, is it? No. Well, I was having a look at how many how many games Spurs did actually play during September and October, because I think the estimates were about 100 before they actually got into the, into the fixtures. And between, I think I'm saying between the 13th of September and the 4th of October, they played eight games so basically it was basically two two games a week and Harry Kane I think I'm right in saying was involved in in every single one of those I think uh, uh so su- surprise surprise he joins up with England and then you know halfway through the the camp uh, it's reported that he's suffering from from muscle fatigue um yeah you know it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that there's a problem there yeah, I'm, I mean, you just think of Harry Kane. Like, he just seems to be this footballer that's just constantly being put through the mill and he's just like treated like an absolute robot as if he doesn't need any recovery time, as if he could just kind of go out there and just deliver week in, week out to the standard that everyone expects. Um, yeah, I, th- I mean, and all of this leads really, really nicely into, into the guest that we had on the show this week, John, doesn't it? Yeah, so our guest this week was Nick Littlehales, who is better known as the the sport sleep coach. So if you caught the previous interview that we did with Professor Mark Jones, he mentioned during the course of that that, that sleep actually is something that is is often overlooked, strange enough, even though it affects everyone uh, in, in football. But Nick has been looking at it in depth for for over 30 years now, working with, with clubs including Manchester United, Arsenal, Real Madrid uh, and Chelsea, uh, as well as, as the England national team. Uh, and his role is, is basically helping players and backroom staff overcome any issues they, they might have with, um, with sleeping. So uh, there's a, a really good article, actually, that, that's in The Guardian, uh, where Gary Neville is interviewed and he talks about his time during Euro 96 and says... That after the Scotland game, the players didn't go to sleep for for three days just because they were on this kind of wave of euphoria. Um, and whilst that potentially wasn't a problem, they went on to win the next game four one against against Holland. In all in all um, in all circumstances, it, it can be a it can be a real issue, and that's where Nick comes in. Yeah, and it, and it ties into what we were just saying. I mean, it's not just about the euphoria of and, and, and that kind of adrenaline rush of playing at top-level football, which must make sleeping hard at the best of times. But, you know, when you've got a schedule like the one we were just talking about with Harry Kane, it's really, really difficult to kind of take advantage of those breaks and kind of give your body and your mind uh, the recovery that it, that it needs. Um, 
And and I mean, we'll come on to the interview, but Nick summed up the work that he does in, in terms of sleep coaching really, really well when he basically said like the key role is to just take away the pressure and the worry about sleeping and just kind of make it a, a very natural thing that's very, very easy to do. Um, introducing players to the concept that actually it's kind of periods of 90 minutes of rest for the body and the mind so naps you know they don't have to worry about getting a solid eight hours sleep a night that's a bit of a myth um but also just doing very very simple kind of contextual things like making sure the accommodation the bed linen the curtains like all of those really really basic things are geared up to helping kind of the footballers sleep in the best way possible and just make the whole thing as easy as possible um, so we touched on a host of topics with Nick from his, his role with England at Euro 2004 through to the work that he's done at British Cycling. Um, and Nick was really keen to stress that actually whether you're working with a footballer, a cyclist or even just somebody working in business, you know, the principles are all exactly the same. Um, so there's a hell of a lot that we can all learn from this interview. So sit back and enjoy our interview with Nick Littlehales. <laughs> Our guest this week has worked with clubs including Manchester United, Arsenal, Chelsea and Real Madrid, founder of the Sports Sleep Coach Company and a man credited with helping Cristiano Ronaldo get some shut-eye. It's our pleasure to welcome to Beat the Press, Nick Littlehales. It's great to be with you guys. So sleep coaching might not seem like an obvious career to to many of our listeners. Um, What led you to become a sleep coach and, and how from there did you manage to get involved in football? I sort of, I sort of fell into the sleep industry, trying to bring up a young family um, way back in the early eighties. Okay, I'd wandered through various different roles as an international sales and marketing director for a big company, travelled around the world looking at sleep and stuff. Um, brief little bit setting up the first UK Sleep Council. I was working for a big brand, and we were trying to innovate and lead, and that led me to do a lot of things in around the sort of clinical side of sleep. So I, I just you know, by default, had to get interested in it. Um, along that journey, there was sort of lots of contradictions. There seemed to be no sort of definitive guide. The, the general rule, whether you're with a professor of sleep or just me or any individual, was it's taken for granted. It's not a performance criteria. There's no education about it. And yet we were all wandering around going, knowing how important it was to us and a pretty damn big chunk of our day. I sort of suppose I got to a little bit of a midlife crisis you know, in my mid-40s. I, I was working with a big organisation. We'd been through a number of takeovers and sell-offs and stuff like that. It was just like, uh. um I'd always been fascinated by sport as a teenager. So it just so happened that my UK office was in Oldham, Manchester in the UK. And I was just sat there twiddling my thumbs, working out a 12-month director's contract. And uh, the local football team called Oldham Athletic came knocking on the door and, and they wanted some sponsorship. And, uh, you know, back in those days, sponsorship on shirts and things like that was very, very limited. Um, and so I just thought it'd be a good thing to do. So I put the company's name on the front of their shirts. A lot of the workforce uh, were all season ticket holders. So it was kind of like more of a little workforce thing rather than, a, you know, company's name on the front of the shirt. The trouble was that the company's name was called Slumberland, which is a bed company. And so the media found that really fascinating. And, and as you can imagine, uh, the stories were more about the team's half asleep and all that sort of stuff rather than positive. But what happened was, because I was the guy who wrote the checkout, I got invited along to some events. 
and uh, there was a breeding ground. I wasn't aware of it, but there was a breeding ground of footballers, principally, you know, Manchester United, the local big club. Um, so Oldham and Berry and places like that were where these young players used to come from. So I ended up bumping into Alex Ferguson. And, um, you know, it was interesting, just like you asked me the question, you know, what do you do? And sleep and stuff and beds and things. And so it just sparked off a little conversation. Uh, and because whilst, you know, well, Manchester United, they're all sleepers because they're humans, but they're not in the sleep industry. So basically I could say what I wanted to sort of change their approach to it. And it started with a guy called Dave Fever, who was the physio at the club at the time. He just had an interest in sort of maybe that my competence in, in products and sleeping and stuff like that could help him with one of his main players who was significantly suffering with lower back issues. That just started some dialogue. Then we started thinking about maybe other things. And I think at that time, if it had been any other club around in the late 90s, any other club, they wouldn't have even been interested. But there was a little bit of, there was a bit of Sam Allardyce at the time. There was a little bit of uh, Alex Ferguson who were just very early stages of, if we don't know something, why don't we find out more about it? Another guy came along called Rob Swire. I got involved with Rob. We became friends, still are. And there was little things like pre-season double-up training came in, you know, way before you were born, probably, Luke, you know. Um, and it was like, what do we do with the players in between training sessions? They've never done this before. So we created a little area in one of the offices at the training ground. We put some sort of recovery products in their lounges, and we encouraged the players to actually go to sleep in between training sessions. So there was sort of like napping started to, to be thought about. And because back then, you know, only a few of us had phones and it was class of 92 and all that sort of stuff, they really would take on board anything that we would tell them to do. Um, then they started to see one or two little things like with the data collection was how the players' uh, data changed from the morning to the afternoon training sessions, which they'd never got before. So there was little things like chronotypes started to come up in my mind. You know, the morning types and the night timers, that maybe that's having a little bit of an influence. Then you could start to see the coach's mind start ticking about, hang on a minute, you know, we, we've probably got some really good players in here, but we don't collect any data at the right time of day. Because those players played for England, I suddenly got knocked on the door from the England squad. The physio for the England squad was a called Gary Lewin. He was, he was the physio at Arsenal Football Club. Uh, uh, a spectacled French guy arrived called Arsene Wenger, who had a completely different mindset about football. And so I was asked to go in and, and do a coaching session with the first team of Arsenal. And I suddenly realised, hang on a minute, what am I actually doing? They seem to want to know more about this, but... You know, what am I actually doing? So it was only the media loop that suddenly, you know, in those days, newspapers suddenly just go, somebody said, you know, Manchester United, England squad have got a sleep coach, just putting coach and sleep together. They basically took that as tongue-in-cheek, you know, those pampered players and all that sort of stuff. So literally, I just woke up and sort of like, well, I'm a sleep coach. Okay. So that journey just started to progress. And over the years, 
There was Euro 2004 in Lisbon and Portugal, which created a different set of circumstances. Still, we started looking at environments and, and products and stuff like that because we had an opportunity to do it. Then British Cycling challenged to put a British rider on the Tour de France podium. Uh, they had to look at sleep because it was all about the aggregation of marginal gains. So they couldn't look at the clinical side. It's too intrusive. So I was the only guy wandering around with some sort of perspective about this. So I got involved with it. And really, that's when sort of my, I had to sort of umbrella the technique. It's a bit of a journey. It's a step process. You look at this, then you look at that. You build it all together. Uh, and that's what happened over that period of time. They had amazing success running into 2012 with Bradley Wiggins, first Tour de France rider, lots of track gold medals. I was working with Paralympic cyclists on the track and on the road. And they had an amazing time around 2012. And since 2012, you know, the world has continued to shift. And it, it's not all good shifts, you know. It's challenges as well as positive steps. So certainly over the last five or six years, the sleep has become, you know, the subject and probably be blamed for absolutely everything that goes on wrong on this planet. There are now sleep coaches everywhere in various different forms. But um, it's certainly been one of those journeys. It's been a very lonely journey, I have to say, up until recently. But um, it's been very an interesting one. I should have given up many, many times. Um, but thankfully, I didn't. And, uh, you know, whilst the coaching is a combination of performance coaching, but also protecting, you know, the vulnerabilities of the challenges of today, it's using recovery to, to protect athletes, but also to gain elite level performances. That's really interesting, Nick. You, you touched on a lot, a lot of things in that in that summary. Um, but but one thing we wanted to pick up in a, in a bit more detail, I suppose, was kind of the the issues that, that face football players in in particular. Um, so I think Gary Neville described an episode from early in his career in which he couldn't sleep for three days after the euphoria uh, of England's win in year 96 against Scotland. Um, how, how common is, is that kind of reaction and, and what other reasons do players give for, for not getting enough sleep? I think because there isn't that definitive approach in their world and it neither around the coaches, you've basically got this wake up in the morning and when there's only so many hours left, go to sleep. If you've got games um, that start at different times, it might mean that you have to try and go to sleep at different times so there's no consistency. That could be 11 o'clock at night or 2 o'clock in the morning if you're travelling back from a game. You then combine it with the, with the challenges of going into a major event, the training, the preparation, the anxiety. This could be your last game, right, with an injury. Uh, will you play well? Will you actually play? Will you actually win? And, and I think when you get all of that together, it means that the dynamics of going into a natural sleep state, there's too many barriers. So what happens is that the brain sort of continually adapts. And when you've got those circumstances, it just takes you into a sort of different mind mode, okay? So what happens is, is you can go through a period of time of not sleeping that night because you got back quite late and then you're sort of waking up in the morning type of process. But suddenly that can last for two or three days because you just can't get out of this because you don't know how to get out of it, right? You don't know how to reset. So it's basically just the lack of knowledge and education that creates those things because of natural. Th and we have these challenges all the time. 
And what you've seen is that, you know, I'm in my 60th, just turned into my 60th decade now. So I'm one of those fortunate or unfortunate coaches who spent the majority of his time without 24-7 technology and then this period with it. And so, like everybody else, you've really sort of experienced significant shifts. So I could walk around Manchester City, you know, the city centre, with the likes of David Beckham, the Nevilles, whatever, shopping. And people would come up and ask for a signature, sign my shirt or something. They would sign that, but that signed article would go nowhere. It's the, for that person. And there was respect and stuff like that. You couldn't even think about doing that now. You couldn't even, So I think what's happened is, as we've sort of expanded with 24-7 sports and news and social media, and some of these athletes, the majority of them, their worlds have got much, much smaller. And they become isolated. And that creates anxiety levels and stress levels to, to go to much higher levels. So even in sort of Gary Neville's journey, there were some challenges, but they've got even more complicated as the decade has gone on. Now, the positive side about that, though, guys, is that if in the background they did have a definitive approach, they did have a better understanding, then these things can have less impact. But the problem is, is you, you normally, you more, it's normally hidden away. It, it's not so obvious. So sometimes, you know, you, you will get asked to go in and try to look after a player who's literally gone, you know, almost to the edge. So they're hardly sleeping at all. They're probably diving into addictive behaviours, trying to overcome fatigue and all that sort of stuff. So the, the challenge is, there's so much more available at the end of your fingertips without medical advice and professional advice. In the, in the general terms, it's not something that we expose, a bit like mental health. It's sort of like, are you sleeping okay? Yeah, but you've got no engagement. You're not going to turn around to a coach or, and, and say, I'm not sleeping at all because they'll probably not allow them to train or play. So it's really sort of been all that really sort of unknown. Sleep is a thing that is not about performance, so you should be able to do it. And if you've got a problem with it, it's almost like you're a loser. So it's never really come out as an issue or a problem. So I think as we've been shifting and changing the challenges, the problem is, is those challenges have been growing on an area that was weak in the first place. Nick, you've t- touched there a couple of times on, on the impact that uh, the quality of sleep can have on, on player performance at an elite level. What, what kind of impacts can it have uh, in terms of the, the performance that players are delivering? The list is endless, guys, because this is part of, without getting too you know, technical or clinical in this particular area, it's part of a very natural process. It's called the human being has got a brain and bodily functions. Those functions and the brain are synchronized to the sun going around our planet called circadian rhythms, which all mammals and plants react to. That is about light, diminished light and dark. And that 24-hour rolling process goes on irrespective of what human beings do anywhere. So once you get out of sync with that process, which is what we've been doing with all sorts of ways, then what's happening is, is your ability to cope becomes diminished. So your, your overall 
approach to, to sleeping and its benefits start to become, rather than being a positive impact on your day, they can actually become a negative. So the reason for that, you've got mood and motivation. If you've got good motivation and good mood, that's positive, isn't it? But if your mood's down and your motivation's down, it becomes a negative. So there's all the things about alertness, awareness, decision-making, injury times, mood, motivation, relationships with others, you know, anger management, stamina, cardiovascular performance. There's all sorts of areas you can go into. But I think the main one when somebody's in a, an unrecovered state for long periods of time is that literally they just turn up for training with a grumpy face. They're not interested. They're, they don't take on board. You know, the coach can stand there for an hour and they might only get 10% of what they've said. You know that graveyard slot in business just after lunch? You're in the room, but you're not quite there. It's, so this is what happens. And when you're on the field, you know, we've had those little Beckham kick-out moments, haven't we? When you're in the sort of sporting environment, you suddenly start to realise that these little things, maybe you could actually reduce them or minimise them or take them out of the system. Because the way players react and the decisions they make, which we see even more so these days with VAR, the little tiny things they used to get away with, they, they can't anymore. So it, it might be just a little nudge. It might be just a slap on the cheek. We all know that when we're in a, you know, we don't feel recovered. We just don't feel at our best. We can get through our day. We can perform. We can do stuff. But the reality is you're a shadow of where you should be, and that's dangerous. So you give the ball penalty at the point of the day and you've got two chronotypes for example so there's me and you Luke I'm an AMA you're a PMA we're both top flight penalty takers but maybe you should take the one at 10 o'clock at night because just maybe you're a little bit more attuned to that period of that day because of your natural chronotype we could both smash it in but it's all these little factors that come in guys and if it gets too much then what people start to do is try to try to overcome that sort of natural underlying fatigue with overstimulating. And that can be caffeine in all sorts of shapes and sizes. You know, this, the trouble is sometimes it's not about young footballers. It's just about us all. If you've got a product called a sleeping tablet and you're struggling with sleep, then why not take a sleeping tablet? If you've got a headache, take some paracetamol because they're headache tablets, <laughs> and it's sort of, or they're pain tablets. So the trouble is, with all that lack of education, they start deep diving into these areas and using these things to try and overcome it in their own particular way. You know, you mentioned a few clubs there. You know, there's a handful of clubs who seem to be on another planet. You know, some of them are struggling. I think it was um, Jurgen Klopp got asked a thousand times, you know, how did Liverpool you know, do what they do. And all the time he just mentions consistency. And that's just how quickly players recover from injuries because they've got a good recovery program. Their mindset, how many players available to play? Can they keep playing right up until, you know, the 96th, 7th minute? It's all that sort of, their decision-making is more consistent, you know? Everything about them is more consistent as a, as a collective team because you don't just concentrate on the players. You concentrate on everybody around them who influences what they do. So very, invariably, when I go into a club, 
It is all about all the coaches, the kit man, everybody who actually has any influence, the people who do all the planning and the hotels and the coaches and the trains, you know, if they're wandering around half asleep, then their decision-making is bad and then that reflects on da 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 You've mentioned kind of during the course of the conversation so far quite a few, quite a few elite clubs. Um, is, it, is it the case that, that sleep coaching is still kind of confined to, to clubs at kind of the top end of the football pyramid or, or is it a bit more kind of widespread than that now? Um, along that journey, it's been very much sort of elite organisations with specific goals, you know, like British Cycling, Team Sky, specific challenge, got plenty of money around them so they can investigate lots of things. And it has been pretty much premiership clubs or top Bundesliga clubs, you know, La Liga, that sort of thing. It's always been the top clubs who can go into this particular area. But probably over the last four or five years, there's been a hell of a lot more interest from lower leagues and, and different types of sports. So I will, I will be coaching anybody around the world in, in any sport. That can be netball. That can be young up-and-coming athletes of 13 years old and 14 actually reaching out to try and look at this before they even get to that particular point of getting into a first team. I think uh, a couple of seasons ago, because obviously, you know, there's been a big shift recently with everything else, but, you know, clubs like Brentford and Swansea and Cardiff, uh, West Bromwich Albion, Wolves, going right down to uh, Bournemouth. There was a lot more, and Norwich City, in the last two seasons, just trying to do everything they possibly could to, to, to take advantage of the premiership and keep themselves up, always knowing that this, the size of their club means they're likely to be going down and popping back up and going down. But uh, they have to look after all the staff and all the players, probably in more detail than maybe some of the bigger clubs, because the team's smaller, because they haven't got the resources. So certain clubs are just going, we spend quite a lot of money in so many areas, Actually, we should invest the time and effort in things like this natural human recovery process. And if we, can, if we can manage that better, we can probably get not only better performance, but also to protect, you know, everything about the club. So I think there is a shift. I've been experienced to it. And um, that shift, is, I think, is driven by the growing concerns about mental health and well-being. Just look at what they're doing now. You know, over the last few months, you're literally just walking from, you're not even stopping, really. There's no, there's no uh, respite to it. You're just moving from that game into preparation to that game, into preparation to that game. So it puts a hell of a lot of pressure. So I think I, the one thing I hope is that we all get to the other side of this pandemic stuff. But I, I also having a lot more conversations because I think this this whole sort of lockdown bubble scheduling this there's always been talk about it you know in the winter months and not having a winter break and all I think I think it's really helping us all identify that we probably have been pushing it too far. Well Nick we, you mentioned that we, we did want to touch on on the impact of COVID um, what, what are you seeing in terms of how that's affecting uh, the sleep of footballers and, and what are the particular issues that are, that are being presented by COVID and the pandemic? You know, every, every athlete, player, whatever, what, what's really in their DNA and their drive is the next tournament, the next championship, the next game, the next Olympics, right? 
and so they can set out what they're going to do to try and get there. If you take those things away, they become a little lost. Of course, they want to keep the training up and everything else, but they don't know almost what they're training for. They don't know how that program is going to shift and change before a particular thing. So I think what happened with, because football's you know, the big sport, football is, is being used to try and lead the way for every other sport. So if football can find a way, because they have, you know, particularly the premiership, if the premiership can find a way, then that model can translate down into all sorts of different sports of how we start to get back to some sort of normal. So I think the players in the premiership have been forced into, have been taken into such a unique set of circumstances that you have to accept that the impact on that is almost unknown because they're being asked to play inside of bubbles, inside of, you know, they've got still families and friends. We've still got all these local lockdowns going everywhere. The clubs are making, you know, instead of them all getting on a coach, you've got 15 taxis, limos, <laughs> instead of one coach. You've got this, you've got that. You've got testing. You've, they've got families. They're playing in a stadium with nobody there, which is weird, you know. And uh, I think you do all of that because they're really being asked by the rest of the world, can you get this right? Can you find a way? And I think you other put the challenge in there that even recently there was an opportunity that maybe in October we start letting in a thousand fans, you know, to a Brighton and Chelsea game or whatever. Oh, great. So all the other clubs are thinking, oh, this is how we can bring some fans back. And then bang, you ain't doing that now. Not for just another month, for six months. And they don't really know. So I think they're in exactly the same place, but they're in an almost sporting experiment. So, you know, I wander around in this world, but, you know, I'm not getting tested every five minutes. I'm not going out there and trying to perform in front of the rest of the world on cameras and there's no fans there. I'm not getting all of that. I'm also extremely worried as an individual that if I pick something up and take that back to my family, we've all got grandparents and stuff like that. So it's just a complete mashup. And I think that that whole desire to try and to use football to try and manoeuvre us into some sort of new normal is an enormous amount of pressure under very, very difficult circumstances. And I think the worry, anxiety and stress around that area, particularly with males, is just growing and bubbling like mad. And it's a real concern of how they manage that process. Nick, what, what are you doing? I mean, you touched on kind of a whole range of issues there that, that footballers are facing because of the pandemic. What, what are you doing to try and kind of help them in, in terms of their, their mental health? Well, there's a big answer to that question there, but principally is just redefine their approach to what they think sleep is about. It's about mental and physical recovery. It's about human recovery. There's a very simple process, which I call it the R90 technique, which is recovery in 90-minute cycles. It's a simple process. We just chop up their 24 hours into 16 stages, 90-minute cycle periods. We can see sleep times and wake times. We're getting a rhythm between the four phases of the day, phase one into midday, midday into sunset sort of thing. And we've got some sort of planner. We can identify their natural chronotype. Uh, so we try to use that to our advantage, not fight against it Okay, within that planner. I give them a lot of confidence that it's not about just getting your eight hours at night in one block. 
it's quite natural for us as humans to sleep in what's called a polyphasic manner, multiphasic. Now, some people will go, oh, napping, I can't do that. Now, change your mindset. We are, we're not talking about this. We're talking controlled recovery periods, little bits here and there. So we start them on that journey. We get them to realize that, you know, they are a human being with a brain and bodily functions. And if we can just keep them a little bit more synchronized subconsciously, the benefits are there, particularly around light exposure. So we do that, and now they've got a little plan. So we can actually look at it and go, right, this is what's happening Monday. This is what's happening Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, over the next seven days. Let's not look at that as Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Let's look at it as a rolling 24-hour process, just like the sun going around our planet. It just keeps rolling. And what we need to do is recover within that rolling process. But if we can do it with a bit more rhythm and consistency, so suddenly we end up, look, we want five cycles a day. That's 7.5 hours. Where are we going to get those cycles? We might have four 90-minute cycles at night into a consistent wait time. We might grab a cycle midday or a, grab a cycle early evening, depending on the training program, depending on when you get back from here, when you get from there. What we're trying to do is remove the worry about sleeping. And it sounds so simple, but as a coach, you don't tell a player to stop worrying about their sleep. What you do is you just take them on a little journey. And along that journey, they suddenly go, great, yeah, I'm a morning type, so I like to wake up, you know, 6, 6.30 every day, and you said, well, let's make it 6.30. Okay, because my brain likes a nice consistent wait time. Yeah, it does, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to do this when I wake up in the morning. When I get to training, we're going to do that. Then I come home after training. Then I'm going to do a 30-minute or 90-minute cycle. Yeah, as one of your cycles. Cool. And then we're having a game and it kicks off at 5.45. Then I'll do one here. But I can also do them in the training ground. I can also do little CRPs, little two-minute breaks. Because what I do is use things like uh, Kobe Bryant's. You know, elite athletes all around the world. So Steve Redgrave, you can see all these little things. Is they actually found their way. They weren't doing it with any specific uh, coaching. They were just finding their way. So, so Steve Redgrave wouldn't even try and sleep before a major event because he's too wired. It just creates more worry. You know, if uh, like Gary Neville, if you if you think that you've got to sleep before a major event. And, you, and you're struggling to because you're absolutely wired, you tend to go and say, give me a sleeping tablet. If you come back after a game and you're completely wired and you can't sleep and you think you should be sleeping, you take a sleeping tablet. So I sort of go into their world and just go, here's a little seven-step journey. Let's look at that. Let's just look. Looking for all the little blind spots, all the little things. Raise that awareness, bit of education, define their approach. And just go, so I can actually do that. Yeah, you can. So I'm looking around five cycles a day. Yeah, 35 cycles in a week. Yeah. What does that look like? About 28, 90-minute cycles back-to-back nocturnally. The rest are all little 30-minute, you know, seven of those. So what happens is, instead of, are you sleeping well? Did you sleep well last night? I, I don't know how to answer that question. I forgot about it a long, long time. All I do is coach and follow a sort of subconscious cycle technique 24-hour rolling inside of my world that just rolls all the time and i will get the best quality recovery that i possibly can because when i'm asleep my brain's in control right 
everything else I do, I've got some control over it now. What do I, what do I eat? What do I drink? Well, how do I exercise? How do I train? How do I talk? How do I do this? They're all little decisions I make that is all about me actively doing something, not sleep. Once I enter a sleep state, now it's up to my brain. So why worry about that? Everything you do from the point of weight, when you wake up in the morning, certain little key things, understanding about light, this little multiphasic approach, it's just these little things about just the human brain and us. If you point your brain at certain visuals, you know, chaos, training, managers shouting at you, whatever. If you point it at that, for that, then what happens is your brain processes that and you get bodily function reactions to it, like watching horror movies and scary things. If you just point it for a couple of minutes in a different direction, just, just a short little different direction, it's amazing that that is actually part of your overall recovery break. And the reason I mentioned that is because when I was wandering around as an international sales and marketing director without a phone, there were loads of unplanned recovery breaks because I couldn't do anything than look at the sky, do some people watching, sit there waiting for a train, sitting there. I couldn't do anything. I could scribble something on some piece of paper, but that's where it sits in my notepad. It doesn't go anywhere. So I think all we're trying to do is use this technique to slide in what a lot of elite athletes and high achievers think is recovery is about doing nothing. And they don't like that. They want to be doing something. So I try and shift it away from this nocturnal period where your brain's in control and you're doing nothing to move it into what you're doing while you're awake. It's recovery activity. It's as important as actually physical and mental activity. It's the same thing. It's called activity. So we're actively recovering, we're actively performing, we're actively training, we're actively doing this. Rather than seeing it as a, a sort of, ah, he's going for a little nap after training. What a loser. Napping's for losers. And as soon as you start going, hang on a minute, there are some reasons why just go on Cristiano Ronaldo's social media. And I've, I've never actually coached him personally one-to-one. That's just the media putting two and two things together. But I don't think he minds it because he's out there talking about polyphasic sleeping all the time, napping and this and that. And he's still doing it for fun now, isn't he? And I remember when he came to, first came to Manchester United and he was just some over-ego kid running up, up and down the sidelines doing fancy tricks. I went to coach... Um, Real Madrid back in 2013, Carlo Ancelotti was there, Paul Clements was there, uh, Jack Naylor was one of the guys. Those guys were all at Chelsea when I was at Chelsea and they quickly went to PSG and then shifted to Real Madrid. So I'm in Real Madrid, checking the facilities, coaching with all the staff. This was seven years ago, so Gareth Bale had just arrived for some 80-odd million and uh, the whole first team were there, right? And But I was coaching all the staff, not the first team, because there's language problems. But they don't mention PK and Ramos and anybody. Nah, it's just Ronaldo, you know, because he's the most famous guy. But I think the reason why jumping around a little bit, I wrote a book in 2016. It, it sort of opened up a much broader area of the population to the kind of work I do. And, and I tell you, during this pandemic period, it's not specific to that, but there are so many more players 
who are either in academies on the fringes of the first team. And the, what they're doing is going, well, whether I like Ronaldo, you start to look around and Robert Lewandowski knocking him in for fun these days, you know. It sort of thinks, well, hang on a minute. I can focus on all of these obvious things. But just maybe the secret is to get my recovery sorted. And if I can get that sorted, then probably everything else will fall into place much better because I'd like to be doing it when I'm in my late 30s. So I think they start to see that looking after yourself in this very sort of high well-being, healthy data collection, 24-7 world that we're in, the bit that is your success factor is being able to recover in a manner that's just so easy, so natural, that you don't worry about it. Because as soon as you start worrying about it, in today's world, it's very, very easy to dive into a, into a hole. As soon as you start to wander into an area where it's, it becomes more difficult to cope, sleep starts to get affected. That's the main one. Then everything else starts to change, mood, motivation, everything else. You, you try to do something about it, and, and you go for isolated little things that you can find, whether it's a supplement of this or that, and you just dive into it. And what we're seeing at the moment is that there's probably a tip of the iceberg here, is that there are certain clubs investigating these things and trying to do something about it. I'm working with them, and we're making some inroads. But I think in general terms, you know, the message to anybody in elite sport is you can reach out and get some help in this area, whether you're looking for increased performance or just helping protect yourself. But don't just try and sort this out on your own. Nick, I really love the beautiful symmetry of it being 90-minute uh, segments and cycles as well. That couldn't be any more perfect for a footballer, could it? Well, I thought you might laugh, but it's sort of, it was exactly that. You know, I'm just standing there talking to people and everything else. I was obviously aware of 90-minute cycles, um, but there was nothing there to look at or anything like that. And I just go, mm, how am I going to change their mind about this? And you look here and go there, and I was going all over the place. I wasn't even trying to be a coach. And I just thought, hang on a minute, 90 minutes with a gap in the middle for you know, a suck on an orange juice and the magic sponge and a bit of water. And the gaffer says, you've got to run faster. Okay, five 90-minute cycles, 7.5 hours. There's your eight. Cool. So it did come from just sort of redefining the language relative to the client that I was in front of. But it actually did come from the world of sleep. But nobody, all that, all that meant is while everybody was measuring sleep in clinics and doing research, looking at 90-minute cycles and stages, the only bit you got that came out of that was don't eat too late, put your, put your room at 16 to 18 degrees. How do you do that? And uh, get your eight hours. And if you get six, you're going to die. <laughs> so everybody, pretty 99% of the population, if not everybody, was not doing that. So they just ignored it and cracked on in their own particular way, didn't they? <laughs> I've just got one last question. I mean, you, you mentioned the, the, the teams and the likes that you've worked with uh, down the years. So Man United, Arsenal, Chelsea, Real Madrid, England. I suppose, and, and you mentioned how kind of sleep coaching for you was kind of a journey into the unknown a little bit when you embarked upon it. Were there yeah. moments in your career that really stood out for you where there were real light bulb moments where you could see a really sort of tangible impact from what you were doing and, and the club really felt like they were learning something from kind of the, the sleep theory that you were bringing to them? There's loads, you know, because they just happen. Sometimes 
you know, you just don't record it with a picture or whatever, you know, because it just wasn't in your mindset. I touched on it before. I think there's sort of, the day we were standing there and sort of looking at data with players who were training in the morning tra- and, and now training in the afternoon. And so it's like, and I'm going, this could be this Crowley type thing. And then, wow, maybe it is. And then suddenly some of the staff are just looking in the, as the guys are coming in and we just go, PMA, PMA. AMA, because of the way they're putting the boots on. Wow, look at that. Where can we go with this? Um, British Cycling was another one where you suddenly we started going, this actually works because it's the aggregation of marginal gains. And we were, you know, they were teaching them how to wash their hands back in 2008. Strange, isn't it? <laughs> the way we are today to protect them from viruses. And I think when we ended up going through a whole process. And on the Tour de France, we, we actually got to a particular point. We'd done a couple of tours, the Bravelta and Giro d'Italia. And now we were actually putting a full sleep kit inside a hotel room designed for that athlete, that rider. We're Dyson vacuuming the bedroom. We've got a high particle filter in the corner getting all the pollution out of there. We're blacking out round the curtains and round underneath the door. We're ignoring the bed. We're wiping all the surfaces down because any virus that some hen party left in there the night before or whatever is going to come out in two weeks, three weeks down the course in a tour and stop the win. So all of that's like that. And then we're just unzipping this bag with some layers and linen in it. And the rider's diving into it. It's pretty much the same stuff as what he's got at home. And we're just going, what on earth are we doing? And then we put it back in, take it to the next hotel, and when he comes off the, you know, the 200K ride, he goes up to his bedroom, sleeps with his own stuff in a sort of athlete world that we've created for him, you know? And I think suddenly you just went, this is either madness or having an enormous effect. And the riders, you could just tell, all around the whole team, Team Sky and everybody and British side, it was just, we don't have to measure this because this just makes so much sense. They just seemed to be happier. So there was a real moment there. I remember walking around in Euro 2004, uh, Sven-Goran Eggleston, England squad at the time, walking around this hotel, making all sorts of adjustments. And I was with uh, the doctor at the time called Leif Sward, Sven's doctor. And we were just go- I was just going, right, I tell you what, let's put those players in, that room, in those rooms, this side of the hotel, and we'll put the other players in the other side of the room. Because the sun comes up and goes over the hotel like that. And, and the doc looked at me and went, why would you do that? I said, well, da 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 And he went, amazing. Never even thought about it. So we actually gave them a way to manage how they shut the curtains for the players in their own rooms so that they could stop the sunlight coming in and heating the room up by shutting the curtains and not putting the air con on or actually taking advantage of the light at a certain time of day. And I think there was one picture which always fascinated me was David Beckham was on a balcony at that hotel with his golden pants on called, and I think the press called him golden balls at the time, a long time ago. But that was just, that. what that started was this, this little process about environments, human beings, circadian rhythms, recovery. We took their own pillows. We took their own toppers. The hotel in Lisbon were just... They just didn't understand what was going on because we took the beds out. 
and we brought our own pillows and our toppers. It's like, what are you doing? But that, that experience translated into the British cycling thing. And then there's little moments when somebody rings you up and goes, you know, you spoke to me six months ago and where we were. Yep. Not a great place, was it? Just got selected for the England squad. And you go, wow. Wow. We, you know, so there's loads of little things in all sorts of places, I have to say. And um, sometimes the dementia and the old age doesn't always remember where they are. So that was Nick Littlehales talking to us about the role that sleep coaching plays in football. And Luke, I, I don't know about you, but it's probably the first interview that's had a material impact on my on my everyday life. Uh, definitely, definitely. I mean, it was so enlightening, wasn't it? I, mean, I must admit, I mean, I'm certainly a lot more bothered about the quality of light that I'm getting on a daily basis now. But yeah, as always, it's, you know, it's so fascinating to hear an expert like Nick talking about how a lot of theory around things like sleep isn't really rocket science. And it's about really kind of trimming things back to basics. And also, I guess, you know, coming at it from the from the sports perspective, whilst he did point out that there's some like fairly unique pressures facing footballers, that the basic principles are the same for people in all walks of life. Yeah, and again, it's something that should be really obvious, but you don't tend to think about it when you tend to think about footballers. I suppose it kind of goes back to the theme that we, you know, we touch on in a lot of podcasts, which is that the, the players are human and they they do suffer from some of the you know the anxieties, for example, that 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 that, that everyone does. Uh, I thought it was quite interesting, actually, that Nick talked about the effect on performance and it not necessarily being uh, something that uh, has a, an impact on how a player plays, although that, 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 you know, that, that can happen. Uh, but yeah, he pointed to attention span actually is kind of the primary effect of, of a lack of sleep. And that is something that affects, that, that affects everybody. That was really interesting, wasn't it? You can just imagine sort of a tired player trying to take on board all of the instructions that like Pep Guardiola is drilling into his mind and it all just completely going over their heads so that they're completely unable to kind of, you know, do that formation. Well, it really reminded me actually of a scene from The Impossible Job, which is a documentary we talked about on a previous podcast, actually, where Graham Taylor is talking to his group of players prior to a game and they're they're at the training ground and it kind of cuts as Taylor's talking to the the reactions of the various players. Uh, and, I mean, it could be just to do with what Taylor's saying, but there's a shot, I think, of it of Tony DiRigo, who looks as though he's falling asleep when Taylor's talking them through his kind of pre-match plans. I'm assuming Taylor is just saying, hit Les. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether there's too much uh, tactical analysis being laid out there, John. Um, one, one of the things I found interesting in the interview with Nick was um, and, and I think this is quite common in a lot of the a lot of the kind of um, people we spoke to around psychology and football is that the initial kind of in for someone like Nick was around helping players to physically recover from injury. So the the the, the way he got people interested in the concept of you know sleeping well in the nineties was to you know essentially help players recover from injury. And then as a secondary kind of benefit from all of that, it's all of the kind of mindset mood concentration kind of things which are more much more modern kind of uh concerns i suppose when it comes to sport yeah that that's true and i suppose kind of picking up on you know the the evolution of of sleep coaching it was quite interesting i thought that yeah he talked about how this isn't just something that that's confined now to to elite teams i mean he was listing 
who's this in clubs like Brentford, Swansea and Cardiff and actually saying that the fact that there's such an emphasis now on, for example, retaining Premier League status, but these clubs don't have the funds that are available to Manchester City or Liverpool means that they're actually really focused on these guys, it's a bit of a cliche, these kind of marginal gains now. I thought the other interesting thing that he pointed out when he was talking about the number of clubs or the, the kind of variety of people that he he helps is that he's you know he's helping people as young as thirteen or fourteen, um, which you know struck me as really young actually. Yeah, that, that that marginal gains thing was really kind of you know built into the whole kind of British cycling ethos as well, wasn't it? You know, everything British cycling did was about kind of a half a percent here, half a percent there, and sleep was obviously so. So I guess you know to your point, John, it's no surprise that smaller clubs like you know quite innovative clubs I would say like Brentford and Swansea are, are kind of interested in in, fo- in following this kind of thing up. So, so another another big area that, that Nick was keen to stress in that interview, which, which I thought was really fascinating, was, you know, the, the particular challenges he, he, he came across often when it came to helping kind of sports people and, and in most cases footballers to sleep and kind of that, you know, two challenges he, he kind of seemed to say were the biggest things, which was challenging traditional perceptions. So basically, you know, this concept we've all got about, you know, getting a solid eight hours sleep, this, that and the other, you know, there isn't necessarily any basis for that. But he, he also put a real strong focus on trying to move footballers away from seeking kind of uh, kind of external remedies and looking up things on the Internet and kind of saying, right, well, that's going to help me sleep. And, and, and largely kind of walking into these kind of things with no knowledge of, of the potentially damaging side effects that, that these things could, could have on their bodies. Yeah, I did hint at uh, a real problem there, actually, and I suppose one that's, that's potentially only going to get worse with with COVID as well, because he was at real pains to point out that the demanding schedule, I don't think there's much of an argument about that, will have an effect on on the way that, that, that players think, uh, because, yeah, one, they are under under increasing stress because of the amount of games. But two, I thought it was really, this was a really interesting point. He kind of said the fact that there isn't, or that the, the goalposts are constantly shifting, so Euro 2020 has already been postponed, there's continuing uncertainty about the league, means that, again, players, because of the fact that, like like the rest of us, you know, they, they do think about kind of things in fairly set routines, means that, you know, they're having that kind of sense of uncertainty that has a real effect on their performance. Yeah, I thought there was something else Nick hit upon, which I think was quite a, you know, quite an insightful thing to say about society as a whole. Which is, I guess, footballers like all of us are uh, a prey to this kind of overload of information that's out there now. So when Nick was probably helping players in the '90s, early 2000s, there was a lot less information out there, so he could kind of give very simple messages and and could kind of help people to kind of you know manage the way they slept. Whereas nowadays it's not that simple because he's trying to give some messages, but there's other things they could be reading out there. There's lots of people trying to sell products, you know, information, and it's all like, you know, completely conflicting. And quite often you just sit there after kind of 10 minutes on the, the internet thinking, how, how the hell, what am I supposed to do to help myself sleep? Well, hopefully the answer to that isn't listen to this pod. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, it's too easy, John, that wasn't it? It's too easy. <laughs> Uh, well, that seems like a good note to uh, to say uh, to say goodbye for this week. Um, if you have liked what you've heard, please do leave a review on iTunes. Uh, if you want to hear more or find out more about Beat the Press, then you can visit beatthepress.net or follow us on Twitter at beat underscore press. Mm-hmm.